Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is going to be a discussion about what's going on in the markets and macro situation. We'll talk a bit about the Fed minutes, the Fitch downgrade potential, and now we have Morningstar kind of piling into that as well and more. But before we do, I wanted to welcome Aisha. Hey everyone, thank you for joining today. Do you want to kick it off, Megan? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. So first thing, let's talk a little bit about some of the data that came through this week. We had Flash Manufacturing and Services PMI on Tuesday, and we started off with some not great data. One of the bits of data that we got was Flash Manufacturing PMI coming in at 48.5 versus a forecast of 50. So less than ideal to see one of the leading uh, indicators show that kind of weakness. On the other side, though, Flash Services came in better than expected at 55.1 versus a forecast of 52.6. But one of the concerns that came out in that data was that persistent wage cost increases were causing companies to push more of those increases down through to their clients. So that does suggest there's some resiliency to the idea and the concern about services inflation, an area the Fed has highlighted repeatedly as something they want to watch to see whether that is sticky or not as to how they're going to potentially operate in in the uh, tightness of their monetary policy. Now, I think that that reading is a little bit concerning. We'll obviously want to see what the more detailed reports have to say. We also, following that, got the Fed minutes yesterday. And the minutes were an interesting read. It wasn't anything that we didn't necessarily know from the last meeting, but it gives us a little bit more detail about the last meeting. One thing that they said was additional policy firming may be appropriate at further meetings. We do see Fed funds futures right now pricing in about a 63.3% chance of an increase between 25 and 50 bips at the July meeting, meaning they may sort of sit on their hands in June, particularly with everything that's going on with the concerns around the debt ceiling, and then look at a potential rate hike in July. So that's something to take into consideration. They went on to say that inflation's progress, that is to say the disinflation they want to see, is not acceptable as of yet. And we can see that particularly, again, on the services side of inflation, which is staying pretty high. I think that's something that they are concerned about because we still have wage growth, although it is decelerating above the levels that the Fed wants to see. Credit tightening may also significantly slow business and consumer spending was something the minutes went on to say. That's something that we've been talking about as well at Macrovisor, this idea that really when banks are lending less, in a debt-driven economy such as that of our own, there is going to be a slowdown. And we're seeing that. We saw first quarter GDP, they revised the estimate up from 1.1 to 1.3%, but they did so because of increased non-defense government spending. That's not necessarily a particularly encouraging reason for an upward revision. And then quarter over quarter PCE was also 4.2% saying that, you know, prices had increased by that much. So, you know, we have sluggish economic growth and we still have resiliency and inflation. That's not a combination the Fed wants to see, particularly with wages rising as a source of inflation and productivity dropping, which is telling you what? It's basically giving you a sense that people are getting paid more to do less, which creates problems for businesses because they have to hire more people. And in aggregate, those people are doing less work. And so that increased their costs in two different ways. The Fed also stated that it should be ready to mitigate further 
monetary and financial risks that may arise. And that's something that, of course, they're keeping an eye on with some of the problems we've seen in the banking system. One measure has said that over half of banks have more liabilities and assets. So there is some inherent risk, some potential fragility, particularly as we get further into the later part of the year, where we have more commercial loans, particularly in the office space, that are beginning to come due in the back half of 2023 all the way through late 2025. And of those loans, about 50% are held by banks, and 75% of those bank loans are held by these regional banks. So it is something the Fed's watching. They actually started to talk about this issue in their February minutes, as I recall, as something that they were looking at as an area of concern in these lenders. And we haven't even necessarily seen that um, really the risk there rise because it's really going to be a matter as to when those loans start coming due and, and what the owners of those properties are able to do about it. Can they satisfy the loan? Can they refinance the loan? Do they have the cash flows to qualify for that? It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But credit tightening, slowing business and consumer spending is certainly part of that theme, but it has broader implications. And then, you know, the also, um, the Fed went on to say they are data dependent. So they're leaving the window open for really economic data to shape policy even more. They're wanting to see, obviously, inflation trend lower. And their goal is inflation is measured by PCE at a level of 2% year over year. We're nowhere near close to that at this point. I believe we're around 5%. So we're at least in the high fours. We'll have to see where we are really at the end of this month in the measure we're going to get, I believe, tomorrow. But it's going to be interesting to watch where we go with inflation, because if it is resilient on the services side, as we see some of this data suggesting, that could keep the Fed at least holding rates at a high level and running off their balance sheet for a longer time than the market expects. And to that effect, the last thing that the minutes really emphasized was that cuts are unlikely. So that's just something to take into consideration as we look at the uh, market pricing in cuts as early as potentially September of this year. But the reality is that unless something really big breaks, they may not be looking to cut until sometime next year, possibly even as late as the second half. So that's the recap of Fed minutes. The market wasn't uh, particularly impressed by them. It certainly wasn't seen as dovish. I think it was a bit more uh, hawkish than maybe what people expected. Perhaps people expected a more divided Fed, but they seem pretty resolute about what they need to do. And speakers have been uh, making that pretty clear as well. So it wasn't as if it was a big surprise. But still, the Fed funds futures are pricing in earlier cuts and um, you know, only now starting to see the potential for another raise as early as July. So that recaps that. Aisha, did you want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing with the debt ceiling issue, particularly as it concerns Fitch? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, uh, so Fitch released their rating action commentary um, today, yesterday, actually, um, 6.35 p.m. Eastern Time. And they said Fitch places United States AAA on rating watch negative. So, um, look, I, I've been following these three companies, so I, I've been working uh, with a lot of sovereigns and sovereign ratings, um, and Fitch is always the more aggressive one. So they're always, um, let's say, they like to put countries on credit watch negative a little earlier than few of the other, uh, or earlier than S&P and Moody's. Now, there's another aspect to this as well. Moody's and S&P are both U.S.-based companies, whereas 
Fitch is a UK-based company, right? So there's also a little bit of a disconnect there. I'm not sure if it's because they are US-based that they haven't take, made a move as yet. And Fitch has just done it because they're more aggressive or because, you know, they are non-US. But one of the main things that they did state um, in their commentary was that they don't believe uh, that the U.S. will default as such, but what they do believe is that the risk has risen that the debt limit will not be raised or suspended before the cutoff date, right? So, you know, um, the what's what's the date called, Mayhem? Sorry, I, they're calling it the X date, right? Yes, yes, the X date. Okay, and so what they're saying is, and consequently that the government could begin to miss payments on some of its obligations. So their key concern is not that this doesn't get resolved and, you know, the U.S. just uh, goes ahead and defaults, but that it doesn't get resolved in time and that there may be some missed payments. Now, in terms of the some missed payments, the interesting thing is what happens thereafter. So uh, what they've basically said is thereafter, each of the missed payments so for each of the, you know, the debt that is missed, um, the affected securities would be downgraded to a D. Okay, so it's it would be a restricted default. It would not be an overall default. And therefore, it's not likely that they will immediately sort of downgrade uh, the U.S., to a default status, right? So it's only the individual securities that they're going to start downgrading. And they'll probably start with a D if it's defaulted or if it's a late payment by 30 days, it would be downgraded to a triple C, which is how it goes, right? So 30 days, then the next 30 days, and then eventually um, it's a technical default. Um, now, according to their rating standard, if there is a delay or a technical default, then the U.S., you know, the standard rating model basically uh, downgrades the U.S. by two notches, okay? Now, they, they still think that since this will ultimately be resolved, that they can keep the country ceiling at triple A. So I know this all sounds very technical, but what I do think may happen is if things don't get resolved by the X date and we're coming very, very close to the X date. And it seems um, that the U.S. may miss a payment. I, I do think that S&P and Moody's will both step up and put the U.S. on credit watch negative. And in that case, I, I do think it's going to have a negative impact on the market. When this happened in 2011, the U.S. actually did get downgraded um, and the market, uh, it rattled the market massively, right? So we know what happened in 2011. The market took a tumble, I think it was about 20 points, uh, sorry, 20%. Um, and I, I don't see it happening as such here because I think they are moving towards a resolution. But if it doesn't happen in time, we will see pressure uh, on the markets. So that's just something that, you know, we wanted to cover a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. Really important stuff, particularly because we haven't seen a credit rating downgrade since 2011. As you mentioned, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on back then, too. You know, we had the European sovereign debt crisis that was playing a role in some of the downside we saw. So it was like this convergence of concern about what was formerly considered to be better quality debt than perhaps it was on the other side of everything that happened. And that sent shockwaves through the market. And I think that this time is a bit different. I, I agree. I think it's more likely that we see uh, a resolution. The real question is timing and how do they deal with it if they don't have uh, things kind of taken care of by the X date? Do they shut down the government again, which is something they like to do to kind of pause payments in a place where it doesn't cause a technical default? Or do we see something else? It's it's really at the purview of the White House as to how they handle that. So it's going to be the Biden administration that decides the priorities of spending. And I'm sure they'll have the advice of make sure you don't miss those interest rate payments on all those maturities that are coming up. Because of course, like you said, you know, that could create a uh, credit rating downgrade on those instruments. It could also create a lot more tension and nervousness in the markets. And I don't think anyone's really interested in seeing that outcome play out, uh, you know, in the administration. Absolutely. And I think um, even if we do get a resolution, you know, I think we discussed this a little bit last time as well, but I think it bears, uh, you know, repeating it. It's a good idea to repeat it here again, that even if we do have a resolution, what happens afterwards um, will be dire. Right. So we have a situation where the Treasury will start issuing um, debt again. So Mahim, I know you wrote a really good uh, thread about that. Do you want to just take everyone through that thread a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. So, you know, the the big thing that Aisha and I have been talking about over the last couple of weeks is the debt ceiling situation itself is a bit of a concern, but it's really what comes after that's much more of a concern. Because one way or the other, it's our belief that they will resolve this. We're, we're not looking for a default. We think that's a very, very, very low risk, way out on the peripheral of the, the left tail. This is very unlikely. But on the other side of it, the Treasury has not been issuing debt since January when it started to implement extraordinary measures as it was approaching the debt ceiling. And so as a result of that, you've got a pent up bit of demand, you know, that that eventually needs to be released for issuing debt because the budget of the U.S. has grown a lot. And they passed the Chips and Science Act. They passed the ironically named Inflation Reduction Act that is actually driving demand at a time of inflation. But, you know, th that spending is in the pipeline. And so is a lot of other government spending. The defense budget has increased to another record level. Um, and we're all wrangling about, you know, the budget. And of course, in, in the defense budget, about a third of it, we don't even know where it's going, what it's being spent on. They're not necessarily doing an audit. It would be good to have some idea there as we haven't for about, you know, over a quarter century. Uh, but nevertheless, that seems to be off the table, talking about defense cuts in any way. So at the end of the day, there's this need to issue an enormous amount of debt. Estimates of are up to one point trillion by the end of the U.S. fiscal year. And the U.S. government's fiscal year ends on September 30th. So it's, it's not like they have a huge amount of time. So let's say, theoretically, they're able to resolve things by June. 
then you have 1.2 trillion of debt that you're able to, you know, basically you're able to try to issue to the market over the next four months. That's about $300 billion. Now, some of that's going to be front loaded in bills to fund up the Treasury General account and otherwise. So it's probably going to be an uneven distribution with about 700 billion of bills in the next several weeks after the resolution occurs. So that's going to be a pretty big liquidity soak that could impact the markets in the way that we see the price of bonds down, the the pressure on rates upwards, and certainly some potential pressure and long duration risk, uh, tech, biotech, other kinds of growth could be factors that see some pressure on them. Because as rates rise, particularly in real terms, you know that's going to further compress risk premiums, and a lot of correlations are already pretty thoroughly skewed in a way that it suggests that either rates have to come down or some of that stuff that's really had a great run, um, you know, that, that that's going to have to come down essentially, or maybe they meet in the middle somewhere. And you probably have seen that chart on my feed where I talk about sort of the variance between QQQ and TLT or the 10 year note price and uh, the NASDAQ 100, so forth and so on. They, they, the sort of jaws are very, very wide at this point and they have a habit of eventually closing one way or the other. So that's an area of concern because if that much new issuance is set to happen, in such a short period of time, it's going to pull out liquidity, not only from the treasury market, but from the broader market as it's likely to drain bank reserves. And as it does, that's likely to put some pressure on a number of different assets. So I think that what it kind of spells out is we've had a bit of a vacation from quantitative tightening. If you look at mid-October from last year through the present, we've had some drivers of that. Part of it's been issuance of uh, liquidity, right? We've had the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China pumping some liquidity into their financial systems. There's always going to be some slippage or some spread of that liquidity to other markets, particularly the U.S., where assets are arguably the most attractive. But the other part of it was the Treasury General account was spending, and the Treasury wasn't issuing debt from January on as well, but they were spending from October on from that account pretty aggressively. And so that's also added more liquidity, more high-velocity liquidity to bank reserves. That's not as big of a driver of adding liquidity to the system, but it's still something to be considering because on the other side, they haven't been issuing issuing debt from January on, which is the really big um, sort of, I would say, reducing the impact of QT. We went from a situation where they weren't issuing debt, where they may in excess of $1.2 trillion by September 30th. Now, if that start date ends up being July instead of June, that changes the parameters of the issuance. Not only is there more potential for a larger amount to be front-loaded, but it means they have shorter amount of time to issue $1.2 trillion before the end of the fiscal year for the government. So that's why that's a concern for where things may go. You know, there's obviously some potential that uh, yields need to rise a bit commensurate with the volume of the issuance to get the interest necessary to soak up all that debt. And that's the way markets are supposed to work, right? If there's not enough demand, then something needs to make the supply more attractive. In this case, it would be a higher yield to attract buyers. And with all the sort of kabuki theater that's going on with the debt ceiling negotiations, I could imagine some buyers being a little bit more timid until yields rise a bit to compensate them for what they may perceive as higher risk in a legislature that can't seem to get its act together and a government that can't seem to get its act together in any of the branches, really. And so that's not a big confidence-inspiring uh, moment, particularly if you're putting a country on credit watch negative. And, you know, you add to that what happened with uh, Morning star, and they've also put the USA on AAA credit watch negative. I, I was curious what you thought about that, Aisha. You mentioned Fitch tends to be a little more aggressive, but Morningstar following on, is that something we should be watching? Um, so I'd be more interested to see what S&P and Moody's say. I mean, I know Morningstar is, uh, you know, a valid rating company, but, you know, globally, 
um, we look at Moody's, S&P, and Fitch. So I, I think Fitch, uh, putting it on Credit Watch negative seems to be something that I would you know value more or uh, than uh, Morningstar. Um, so that that's something that you know we should look out for. So a, any news coming out of Moody's or S and P would be of utmost importance here. Now, in terms of the debt issuance, so here's a question someone asked a couple of days ago: Is that you know if the Treasury starts to issue, or not if when when the Treasury starts to issue the debt the way that they're supposed to, what happens next? What happens to this debt? Where does it go? Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's a number of ways that can play out. We One thing we know with a reasonable amount of certainty is it's not going to be the Fed scooping it up, right? They're, they're on the other side of the ledger here. They're letting it roll off of their balance sheet. Um, and we have a situation where, where uh, banks are actually net distributors of U.S. sovereign, uh, particularly on the longer duration side of it. We have Japanese insurance companies that have publicly stated they're not going to be buying as much because of currency hedging costs and really making it more attractive for them to buy the uh, Japanese government bonds. And so, you know, the, the, I think the, the demand source is probably going to be non-bank corporates and households that are part of that great rotation theme where they're, you know, 50 and up and looking for more fixed income during a time where there's some more attractive opportunities there. What do you think? It's an interesting question, right? So, and I think you're absolutely right. So the likes of Warren Buffett and Apple, and I think these guys will have to step in eventually and buy some of that because at the end of the day, it's still U.S. government treasury and it's still backed by the full faith of the government, right? Um, now, in terms of the QT, though, so when this happens, obviously, I, you know, it sounds a little disastrous in a sense that there's going to be a huge, huge uh, vacuuming of liquidity um, and all in a very short period of time, right? Um, so do you do you think that the Fed might pause QT in that, in that circumstance? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question as to whether, you know, the Fed policy would change during a time of so much uh, liquidity being pulled out from a, a non-Fed operation. My gut is that they're going to kind of wait and see that their data-driven approach is going to extend not only to how they approach economic data, but also how they approach some of what's happening, particularly in the treasury markets. As we remember, back in March of this year, we saw a surge in treasury market volatility. Liquidity dried up. We had days that, you know, we hadn't seen that kind of volatility since like 87 or 2001. And there were days where rates were also surging to those kinds of levels. Although in fairness, now we're seeing some of the bills that are maturing in June, uh, surging to rates above 7%, which is even higher than what we saw in 2001. But nevertheless, overall, we saw a lot of volatility back then in the Treasury market. And I think that gives us a bit more of an idea of what this could look like. If you take liquidity down, 
typically you drive volatility up, right? There's less money uh, going on either side, the bid or the ask for transactions that are occurring in the market. So we may see that as one initial consequence that book depth starts to dry up in various treasury markets for the futures that are traded and for other areas where uh, there's there's buying and selling. We might see less participants in the auctions that are non-dealers and dealers have shrunk their participation over time. And we know the Fed was the biggest participant and they're no longer uh, involved. So I think they're going to look at all those factors and try to judge whether it makes sense. But I think if they did that, it would send the wrong message because I, you know, they really haven't had the impacts of quantitative tightening have any meaningful effect for the better part of seven months. And we can see it in financial conditions while credit conditions are tightening, and that'll probably have some positive effect for tightening Fed policy, as they've mentioned as well. I would be surprised if they decided that they were going to... Um, you know, move forward with the idea of pausing QT. But I think it's possible if something really starts to break and that treasury market becomes a more of a concern, right? You see uh, maybe rates start to spike up. You see treasury volatility coming up. You see liquidity rising. And maybe you see some dislocation spread into other markets like commodities and currencies and equities. At that point, if there was something that powerful, in their minutes, they said they have to be kind of aware of risks to the financial system and monetary system. I think that might be where they would say, okay, well, maybe this is big enough that we need to either stand up a facility specific to it to buffer this or potentially reduce QT or pause it, as you alluded to. But I don't know that they'll do that unless something you know really, really big starts to break. What, what do you think about that? I'm very curious of your thoughts there as well. Whether the Fed will pause QT? Exactly. And under what circumstances, if they did? So look, I think at this point, if the Fed actually pauses QT, it sends a very bad signal to the market, right? So even though we've had bank collapses and we've had, you know, significant amount of stress in the system, the Fed hasn't wavered from their commitment. And I don't think they want to, because I think the biggest problem that we have in this market right now is no one believes the Fed. And if you think that Powell doesn't know this, uh, we're mistaken. He reads the newspapers. He reads. I wouldn't even be surprised if someone is, you know, telling him of what goes on on Twitter. So I, I'm sure these guys know exactly how the market is thinking. And because he blinked last time, I think he's determined not to make that mistake again. Unless there's something so drastic happening in the market um, that he actually is forced to do so. So in my mind, I don't see a situation right now from what we can see, I don't see a situation where um, the Fed would actually pause QT. That would be like, a, you know, in an extreme circumstance for them. I don't think he's going to blink again and give the market that idea that every time something happens, the Fed will swoop in to save the day, you know. Um, and you know, when asked about the debt ceiling, I think it was not not the last meeting, the meeting before that, he was very, very clear when he said that, look, this is not our problem, right? This is a problem for Treasury and, you know, for the government, for Congress. Um, so I think he's, tr I think they will try to maintain that line of thinking. So I don't think that they will think about pausing QT um, unless, you know, all hell breaks loose.
Yeah, absolutely agree. I think we're we're pretty well on the same page there, and it's it's important to take that into consideration because this is a totally different backdrop than what we saw in 2018, 2019, where we had that tightening tantrum and the market dropped 19% in December, and the Fed kind of deer in the headlights paused and then eventually pivoted. We're dealing with persistent inflation, and we're dealing with relatively uh, historically low unemployment. So the Fed has all the latitude they need to keep going, and so I think we're both in a Unless something really, really big breaks, they're they're not necessarily going to do a turnabout on QT. But it's interesting you mentioned Twitter because the Fed just actually released a uh, indicator that allows them to have real time sentiment assessments of what's going on on Twitter. So they actually have been uh, looking at that, and they seem to be looking at it pretty closely. Uh, so it is certainly something at least that they weigh, um, and and they're certainly monitoring social media sentiment and probably starting to monitor social media a little bit more as it pertains to things like um, you know spreading rumors about banks and how they may be at risk as well to see where there might be risks emerging in the system because you know it, there's never really before been a time where you can just withdraw all your money with a few keystrokes on a on a phone or a few touch screen uh, swipes on a phone. And uh, if enough people do it at the same time, cause that kind of run. I think what Silicon Valley Bank had $40 billion exit their bank in just a several, in just a matter of several hours. And I don't think we've ever had that kind of access to move our capital that rapidly before. So maybe they're starting to look at that as well. But if they're not, you would think that might be a good area to start monitoring, right? For sure. Um, well, it's, if they really are monitoring what we're saying, so it's good to know that, you know, we have a voice. <laughs> so there's one thing that I wanted to add here, though, and I think this is something that's a little important. We, we wouldn't know um, the full effect of it, but the negotiations that are happening now between the two parties um they concern the spending, right? They con they concern fiscal spending, government spending. And I think we may have mentioned this before, but I think it's something that's important as well to remember that some of, these spend some of the spending will get cut. And this is going to be a problem because um, as we pointed out before, the GDP, the growth in the GDP was largely fueled by government spending last quarter. Right. So I think this is very critical for the GDP, because if um, the Republicans get the kind of spending cuts that they are hoping for, they, we could see a situation where this actually pushes the GDP growth into zero to negative territory. Um, and I, I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on as to what the outcomes of this negotiation actually is and how it will affect the GDP for, I, I don't think it will affect GDP for Q2 because we're already almost in June, but um, it quite possibly will affect the GDP for Q3 and most likely for Q4. So towards the end of the year, we might be seeing a situation where GDP growth has slowed uh, down, <clears throat> possibly even to negative. Yeah, that's a really good point. We just got a headline that crossed that says that the White House is putting forward a proposal to freeze spending for two years. So that 
that idea is very quickly potentially becoming a reality. I think the big risk we have for Q2 GDP would be if this sort of negotiation process does not work out, and it sounds like they're making progress, but if the government did shut down for the month of June, that would be about a third of the quarter, and that could impact all that government spending that we may have otherwise expected to see. But I agree 100%. The more material impact um, that we may see could be coming from something like this, where they freeze any increase in spending for some material period of time, and two years is certainly quite a long time. So, you know, both parties are trying to come to this resolution. They are both continuing to repeat that there won't be a default. And maybe we're starting to see some progress there because the GOP led by McCarthy in the House has been very concerned about uh, just cutting the budget. The White House seems to be saying we're not willing to cut it, but we'll at least pause spending for a period of time. And that may be at least a starting point to making some concessions to get something moving forward. Right. So <clears throat> speaking of uh, negative GDP, let's segue to the rest of the world here. So today, Germany released their GDP numbers, which came in negative for the first quarter. So now we have two quarters of <clears throat> negative GDP for Germany, which means they are in a technical recession. So things are not looking great there. And um, when you look at the earnings, when you look at what's going on with stocks, they've been doing really well. So apparently uh, the earnings posted last time has been at the fastest, the growth in earnings has been at the fastest pace since the 1980s, in fact. <clears throat> However, I think that's about to slow now. And there could be a situation where, so we're looking at the inflation numbers and they're nowhere close to where they should be, right? And while there has been, a big decline in oil prices, there has been, you know, wage pressures coming down. I think one of the biggest challenges here is um, avoiding a hard landing. And I don't think Europe will be able to avoid a hard landing. They have just too many moving parts there, um, for which reason I, I think that, you know, we're seeing it with Germany already. It's only a matter of, and Germany, the German economy is actually very strong. So, it's only a matter of time before the other European countries start to, you know, either on the brink of uh, recession. So I think going forward, we need to be careful about um, earnings in Europe. That's something that, you know, we possibly were early about when we talked about earnings not being as great. But most of the analysts are now expecting that if Europe does have a hard landing, and it's looking quite likely, um, we could see earnings decline by 18% for the stock 600. So th that's something to bear in mind. Um, Mayhem, did you want to add anything about Europe? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're starting to see some economic data there that's that's concerning. I know you posted something about Germany today as well and, and talked about that. And I think that we have uh, a situation where, unfortunately, it's a more vulnerable economic area than the U.S. It, it, it may be... Um, 
an area to really watch for concern as to how interest rates affect some of the southern European governments that really have higher borrowing costs and and not a lot of uh, budgetary restraint. And I think in time, that also puts pressure on the the European Union as a sort of monetary construct where you have a common currency among countries that have no common fiscal restraint or goals or, you know, overall sort of purview of how budgeting should be done. And that's something that, you know, at least helped to catalyze part of the reasoning for Brexit but could also be something that causes further fractures moving forward. So I think in the really big picture, the other thing about Europe to be concerned about is just sort of unity breaking down over time because there's just so many, you know, like as you said, Germany is a stronger economy. If they're showing weakness, that in and of itself is a concern. But the Southern European uh, economies have been pretty slow for a while as well, and they seem to be uh, set to lag for a while moving forward. Absolutely. Um, And speaking of Brexit, so that brings me to the UK. Uh, We got inflation data for the UK. um, Wasn't great. Although headline inflation, I think, declined a little bit. Core inflation is still accelerating. And so now, um, you know, the market is expecting that the UK isn't done uh, raising rates. Uh, They're expecting rates to be raised again, like, one more time at least, um, if not more, because they don't seem to have inflation under control at all. So things are not looking very good there. Um, The yield on the two-year paper apparently is up, has been up for, what, four or five sessions now. So, you know, their bonds are under pressure, their gilts are under pressure. Um, So things are not looking great in the UK either. So that entire area, the Eurozone, the UK, I think we're seeing, you know, considerable amount of bad news coming out of that region now. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a good segue to also loop in China in this conversation, because, you know, when the reopening was starting last year, it was really looked at as a catalyst for so much economic growth for emerging markets in Europe and potentially the U.S. And it was, uh, you know, seen as potentially a source of a lot of demand, not only for products, but services as well. And it really hasn't lived up to the potential. We can see it in some key commodities. We can see it in iron. We can see it in copper. We can see it, uh, you know, across a lot of the industrial metals, but we can also see it in the economic activity. Production grew much less than expected year over year. I think it was expected to be over 10%. It was around 5%. Retail sales, similarly, I think were in reality 10% up year over year and were expected to be about 20%. And those misses are from very, very weak periods of time where the whole country was shut down. So the base effect should have supported very oppressive readings, and we didn't get that. And I think it also shows in just how the Chinese reopening is isn't taking the um the economy higher the way that people expected because the real estate market is such a key market. The Chinese real estate market might just be the biggest asset market of any asset market on earth, and it's languishing. There's still problems in their banking system. There are still problems with a lot of real estate that doesn't move. So what has that done? It's put a pause on construction, and construction was, at one point, one of the leading drivers of Chinese economic growth, that really impressive growth story that made the country seemingly such an attractive investment. And, you know, for what it's worth, there was a time where they would actually build cities and abandon them or sometimes even knock them down and build them again to pad economic growth. But at the end of the day, with even that and all the other related activities seemingly on a near indefinite pause until something improves, that's another risk. And that's spreading 
into some of the slowness that we're seeing in other economies. Because of course, there's a lot of interconnectivity between China and Europe and China and emerging markets and to a lesser extent, China and the Americas. Absolutely. So I, I think I saw a chart yesterday which showed that as of April 23rd, so about a month ago, floor space under construction was down 40% year on year. So that's negative 40% year on year for China. And new builds, so new new starts or building permits, uh, or sorry, building starts was down 35% year on year. So um, I don't think people are, uh, you know, fully appreciating the situation with uh, the property market over there. I, a couple of weeks ago, I saw another bit of news which said that a lot of the bonds, you know, the offshore bonds are getting, you know, rolled over again and they're negotiating, you know, events of defaults and stuff like that. So it's not looking good. And as you rightly pointed out, their property market is a major factor of growth. Um, not just for the Chinese economy, but for the world, uh, for the world economy, right? And that a lot of that drives um, consumption of industrial metals, of uh, commodities in general. So I think people are still quite afraid. I don't think the revenge spending took place um, as people had hoped. I think people. Uh, have a right to be uh, have the right to be afraid because recent news says that you know they could see up to 65 million cases again per week i think per week 65 million cases of covid again in china and so if that happens um i think they're just all afraid that what if the government locks them down again because this is a government that that's unpredictable right and even though the government is trying to push for spending now because they, they realize what, what they did by locking down for so long and so stringently for so long, I think people still have to break that fear and come out of it. And uh, economic activity needs to pick up uh, and soon. Yeah, I think those are all very, very good points. And that COVID risk, that's, that's something that we know in, in China has been a real disruptor of economic activity. And while they've loosened uh, what their protocols are to try to contain it, if we do see a really big surge that starts to cripple hospitals and otherwise, they may at least start to uh, restrict mobility in those parts of their country all the way to potentially renewing lockdowns. So that is a huge potential risk to monitor for the second biggest economy in the world, where, again, they they're, you know, they're in a really interesting space. And Aisha, I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about as well as sort of China's credit cycle somewhat being disconnected, at least in their attempt, but maybe not so much. Maybe, maybe, just maybe the idea of being untethered is, is not so realistic after all. So we all know that when COVID hit, the Chinese central bank was among the first, if not the very first, to start responding because it really hit their economy first. They were also the first central bank to really start tightening, at least the first major central bank. They started in the first quarter of 2021, and that ended the Chinese stock bull market. It also really started putting into effect the kind of tightness that led to the recession that we saw there, combined with the lockdowns that seemed very unforgiving. And now we're on the other side of that, where they're starting to ease again, but we see a lot of 
global central banks overall, they're still tightening or at least they're at least holding rates higher. And China's tried to break into this new credit cycle without some of the leading economic drivers of growth, like you were talking about with construction, but also without the rest of the world really alongside them. That does make it a little less likely that the country is able to kind of escape critical velocity. And we can see it in the way that their economic data is showing. We can see it in some of their companies' earnings, and we can see it in some of the measures of their consumers um, interacting with other economies as well, not just the Chinese economy, but like you're saying, that revenge spend trend not being really as robust. I think that's a concern because there was a lot of promise in the Chinese reopening priced in not only to their markets, which are now no longer positive year to date, but also into a lot of other markets, into commodities, into equities. And if that's not going to materialize and instead it's going to be uh, flat to even a drag on the global economy, that does amplify some of the risks that we see going into the later part of this year. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the geopolitical situation isn't helping either, right? Um, so I think that's another aspect that's weighing down on China, you know, breaking up, let's say, as, you know, you're pointing out. So I think it's something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, so I, I'm not bullish on China at this point, but it's been very difficult to actually be bullish or bearish on China because, you know, Every three months, you have something new. Um, and at one time, you see the stock market go up, but another time, you see it come down. So apparently, they've, they've erased all their gains, what, for last one year gains or something of that sort. So it, it's just been super volatile. That market has been super volatile. And I think it's best to sort of wait it out, stay away from what's happening there and wait it out and see what happens. Um, but a market that is actually doing well right now is Japan. Yes. Yes. And actually, that was one of my uh, uh, trades that we shared with our members of TraderAid was long Japan, short China. Uh, many weeks ago. That's been a great performing trade. I think it's up something like 12, 13% so far since we talked about it. And, you know, it's it's playing on that theme of, you know, Japan has a lot of pent up potential momentum. If they can really start to stimulate their economy, they still have um, a lot of capacity. They still have a lot of energy and a lot of like really, really smart people. And I think that now we're starting to see so much monetary stimulus there that actually Japan is pulling off maybe what China couldn't. Maybe Japan's going to be the country that's actually able to, at least for some period of time, have a counter uh, cycle, like counter global credit cycle economic expansion. And we see that with stocks there hitting 33 year highs which is a pretty big deal because we know that Japan, when they had their real estate bubble, stocks went into a mega uptrend. They got into a parabolic uptrend and then the bubble burst. And really, those stocks weren't moving much for three decades to reclaim those highs. So seeing what's happening over there in non-currency adjusted terms is very interesting. But it's also interesting because when you do look at it in currency adjusted terms, the Nikkei is, is not an incredibly impressive performer, right? Because the yen has been weakening so much that those new year-to-date highs we're seeing right now 
aren't as such if we if we price out uh, the weakness in the currency. So it's like it's a mixed picture. But if you're hedging your currency risk, Long Japan has been a great trade or offsetting it, uh, offsetting the risk with a pair trade like Long Japan short China. And another trade that came up that we shared with our members of Macrovisor was one of shorting materials, which was the idea that really the economy is starting to weaken, but we're also not seeing the kind of gravity from the Chinese reopening that we were we were uh, being told by various economists would be this big driver of this sort of counter cycle uh, economic expansion. And it just hasn't turned out to be the case. And as a result, we do see continued opportunities of weakness in materials, in industrials, and in other cyclical parts of the economy. And, uh, you know, they've had a decent rally because of that Chinese reopening trade. It, it is possible that some of that is given back. And similarly with agriculture, um, one of our trades that we've talked about was the idea of fading some of the companies that operate in there, including Freeport McMorrin, because with crop yields rising and acreage rising, it's likely that margins are going to go down as prices go down. And those are trades to continue considering as the macro themes that are driving them still seem to be valid. Absolutely. And all great points. So I think Japan still remains, um, you know, a bullish trade. I think as we see pullbacks, uh, I would still be a buyer because it's, it's, it's an interesting situation there, right? So we get inflation numbers um, tomorrow for Japan. And the new governor actually thinks inflation is transitory. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and he's actually right. Because at this point, if Japan starts to hike rates, this will strengthen their currency. Okay, which will mean, again, their imports will start to become cheaper and therefore inflation will move back down again. So they're in a weird conundrum right now. And he I don't think that he wants to make any changes unless he sees that the inflation is really driven by higher wages and not cost push inflation, but rather demand pull inflation. So there's more consumption in the economy and it's driven by strong, robust consumption and wage growth. So until then, unless these items are sort of ticked off, I don't think he's going to be making any changes, despite what, you know, people are saying, because it's just, he's not wrong. It, it, it is transitory in that sense, right? And it could mean that they go back to where they were. Yeah, it's always funny when we hear inflation is transitory and then this time is different, but maybe it really is. And that is a very interesting take. And I think that the, the Bank of Japan has... Um what, uh, over 50% of the government's debt, right, that they own. And the government owns about 55% of the Bank of Japan. Japan's running about a 260% debt to GDP ratio. And I believe the Bank of Japan's um, balance sheet's about 130% of the country's GDP. So if they do turn policy, do you think it's going to be a very slow, methodical turn, one where there's no abrupt change and no unexpected change because of just how massive that amount of Bank of Japan's participation in the economy economy and the debt market is? Absolutely so. Uh, so, And for two reasons, not just because of how massive, massive it is, but also because the new governor is a professor, right? So I don't think he's going to be taking any drastic... He's also older than most of the other governors. So age and being an academic means that he's like to, likely to be very careful in any steps that he takes. Um, and the other thing is, I won't say that they're fragile, but I think it's more that 
you know, moving or turning this massive ship around, um, you can't do it drastically. They, they are going to have to do it very slowly, very step-by-step, very methodically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's uh, something to keep an eye on. It's it's certainly one of the places where we're still seeing a, a real bull market that seems to potentially have legs. And, you know, we always like to look at the entire picture, including different geographies, different sectors, different industries, different asset classes, because no matter what's going on in the world, there's always an opportunity to get long or to get short or even to make money in a sideways range. And I think it's really important to zoom out and not just be totally fixated on the U.S. and the um, assets that exist here, because there's oftentimes opportunities in other markets that may be just as good, if not materially better. So that's why we like to talk about this stuff at Macrovisor. We really like to try to provide a big picture view, identify themes and trades that can come out of those themes, but also try to inform, entertain, and educate our audience. Because at the end of the day, there's so much to learn, there's so much to cover, that focusing on the signal in that big picture is really important. And that's what we're all about. So why don't we start opening up to questions? I see that we have at least one person that's requesting. Uh, so if you have a question, please request to be a speaker. We're happy to take your questions here. And, uh, you know, we're really happy and appreciative to have so many people listening in and supporting us here. So without further ado, let me take that first person up here and Adam as a speaker. We have been discussed uh, many things about that market and macros. The bottom line thing is that uh, that is the results can be give uh, the directions on the indices of the system. So one thing which is for me so curious that that is Russell 2000. It is has not given any move out after uh, long. Uh, if if you look at back last 45 days, more than that. Uh, so what is stopping for Russell 2000? That was my question. Sure. I, I think that's a really good question. Why are the small caps not performing uh, as well as the rest of the market in this environment? And I would say first, you know, probably good to look at the Dow too. The Dow has not had a particularly good year. It's, it's basically um, flat year to date. So I would say that's something else to to look at that, you know, you have the the indice of the major blue chips and it's also not really moving. But for the Russell, there's a couple of factors that are that are causing issues for it to even underperform the Dow and be down year to date. And one of them is that, you know, you look at the comp composition of regional banks in the index and there's a lot of risk there. And I'm sure some folks are even using the futures as a hedge because of that risk. So you see a lot of uh, short selling of the Russell, but also a lot of exiting of small caps as a factor. Factor. The second is we're in an environment of appreciably higher rates, tighter financial conditions, or at least as particularly credit conditions. You know, lending is going to be more of an issue for small, medium, and even larger sized companies. But as it concerns the Russell, about 42% of the companies in the index don't make any money. They have no profitability. And so they're reliant on either equity issuance or borrowing to kind of keep the, uh, the ability to pay their bills and the ability to, you know, keep their doors open. And that's going to be a more 
challenging situation. So that's another reason that I think the small caps are not really participating to the upside. And also the rally this year so far has been very, very narrow. Year to date, about 15 very large companies have accounted for roughly 97% of the upside. And uh, there's about 29% of the internal components, the S&P, that are actually outperforming the broader index, which is the lowest level since 1999. So you could argue that you know there's not a lot of upside in broader parts of the market. And I think that's important to consider because it's telling you that things are not quite as healthy as the indices may suggest in the S&P and the NASDAQ. Certainly, if the Dow isn't really participating, if the Russell's bleeding out, that's also giving you a little bit of a sense that the risk appetite isn't evenly distributed. And if this was sort of a new bull market and a new cycle being born, it's much more likely that you'd have more broad upward uh, participation from lower valuation multiples. And we kind of have the opposite. We have very narrow breadth a pretty expensive market, a Fed that said they're not really anywhere close to done ending the last credit cycle. So I think it's early yet, and the Russell's lack of participation speaks to that. Let me know if that helps. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. That was a great question. Aisha, do you have any thoughts you want to add in there? Sure, just a few. So you're absolutely right in the composition of the Russell 2000. So, And just a few points to remember as well. Most of these companies, the debt that they do have is floating rate debt, right? So not only are they seeing their demand coming down or revenues coming down, but at the same time, they're having to pay higher expenses in terms of interest expenses. So cash is key here, right? And they don't have a lot of cash. So when analysts are looking at this, when money managers are looking at this, when portfolio managers are looking at this, they don't want to take a risk. This is not the time to take a risk because none of us know what's going to happen, right? We're all wondering whether the Fed will maintain rates, raise rates, cut rates, um, liquidity coming down, debt ceiling. So we have a lot of unknowns right now. And I think everything that we are seeing right now is flight to quality. Right. And the Russell just doesn't have quality. So it's as simple as that. Thank yeah, you. That's, that's a very good point. Uh, the flight to quality element of it, because we do see people sort of chasing size as a heuristic for quality as well as and that's one of the reasons the breadth is so narrow and we see some more rotation and more defensive names as well since March. So those are all very good points, Aisha. Does anyone else have any questions for us? Just request to be a speaker. We're more than happy to answer questions. And then, you know, if you tuned in late, no worries. We're going to have a recording of this available on Twitter as well as all major podcast venues. So you can look for Macrovisor on your favorite podcast channel like Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, and add us. And you'll see this come up as a podcast as well. And we do these weekly, so you can tune into the spaces weekly, or if you miss them, you can always check out the recording or the podcast. And if you like the kind of content we're covering here, you can always visit us at macrovisor.com. You can sign up as a free member. We're also doing a 30% discount sale until Tuesday for Memorial Day. So if anyone has any questions, just request, just put up your hand, uh, request to be a speaker. We're happy to address them. I know this was pretty thorough. We covered a lot of different areas, so we may have uh, satisfied all of your inquiries, but we're still here and happy to help to discuss uh, any questions related to this or just the broader market and macro picture. The last question, like uh, uh, the last th last four days or five days, the dollar index has been moving 
upwards direction can you just cover something else about this direction uh size uh so it consists cases Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that um, you know, what we're seeing in the dollar is a convergence of a number of different things happening at the same time. One is that positioning got really lopsided, short dollar, uh, long euros, long yen, and that sort of positioning when it gets that lopsided typically is closer to some kind of interim top. The other is just from a rate and economic differential. Aisha was talking earlier about how there's weakness in some of these European economies, particularly strong ones like Germany showing very uh, um, kind of recessionary signs now with the data. And that tells you with the rates lower in Europe and really the ECB will they'll continue to hike a bit, but I don't think they're going to get to where the Fed has both in rates and in QT, as well as the economic weakness compared to the US. That's a concern because what that does is it makes it more attractive to want to buy dollars, right? You, you see that there's more opportunities in US assets as well. So I think the euro got a little bit overextended. I think the yen got a little bit overextended. So I've been um, you know, pretty bullish dollars, pretty bearish euro of yen, both those Long dollar trade and short euro and yen trades have been uh, ones that I've been talking about to some of the folks that uh, that that subscribe to our work. But I think that that has everything to do with those differentials, and it's likely set to continue. Remember, as we get closer to a recessionary environment, the dollar also tends to have a pretty solid bid. So I think that could be another driver. And we've seen rates rise. And one thing to keep track of if you're looking at intermarket dynamics is when rates rise, particularly on the ten-year, it tends to pull the dollar higher. There's a pretty decent positive correlation between the two. Aisha, what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you've covered it very well. We're still seeing weakness in Europe and Japan, so that that's, and most other major uh, countries as well. So if you look at Canada, if you look at Australia, if you look at New Zealand, so I think the dollar is still king. And in times of uncertainty, everybody still flocks to the dollar, right? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, guys. But uh, I'm living in Germany, but uh, I checked the many of my folks, of your colleagues and other friends, but nobody is caring about decision fear. And the ground reality, nobody is caring. But uh, the Twitter space, there are so much buzz, but the reality is that nobody is caring and labor market has been also been strong. So that is what uh, I really not able to connecting about the real economy, the macros, whatever the uh, presenting in the, um, you know, as a results. Uh, so that's what I, I just, you know, curiously asking these questions, okay? Thank you, but anyhow, uh, for the clarification of all my questions. I really appreciate it. No, I think you make a very good point, you know, because sometimes what happens is because we are following the markets, we are looking at things from a different perspective, right? So we're looking at the more financial aspects of things. And we're trying to project what might happen next. But people who are living day-to-day -day lives, they're not really concerned about where the markets are going. So they, they're more concerned about what's, what's happening right in front of them. So they don't follow the data the way say we follow the data or Fintwit follows the data, right? So they're looking at every data point, every news point that comes out. And this is not general reading for the general public. So I suppose there will always be that disconnect, right? So where the financial players will be a little bit more concerned about where wage growth is going in general, 
uh, versus, you know, the everyday person. So for in everyday life, all we care about is do we have a job, um, not where the unemployment rate is going in general. Absolutely correct, Arisha. This, this angle, I have never been thought about that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the questions too. Really interesting things to talk about and uh, really appreciate that. And hopefully everyone out there enjoyed this spaces. We definitely enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, we really are appreciative of all the support that we've seen both for the spaces and the content we're putting out on Twitter, but also the content we're putting out on Macrovisor. We've got over 7,000 free subscribers. We encourage you to sign on. You can get Aisha's Breakfast Bites every morning, which is a succinct summary of everything that's happened overnight that's free. And it's a lot of value in there. So thanks again for everyone that tuned in. We really appreciate it. And uh, Aisha, do you have any closing thoughts before we close the spaces out? Thank you, everyone. Not really. I mean, I think we've covered everything quite a lot in detail. Um, so look forward to speaking again next week.